The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. And welcome back to the Utah Symphony's Ghostlight podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and thrilled to have Hilary Hahn, internationally acclaimed violinist, with us here today. Welcome, Hilary. Thank you. Nice to be here. Really nice to have you on the show. I want to just dive right in and talk about some of the great things you've been doing. I mean, your concert career is well known to your fans and to anybody who follows classical music in even the most cursory way. You're, you're obviously doing very well in that regard, but I don't think people know the interesting ways you've been bringing music to the communities you visit lately. I'm, I'm thinking in particular of the concerts you've done for parents and infants, which I, I'm just fascinated by. So can you talk a little bit about how these ideas came to you and how you've integrated them into your very busy performing life? Lately, I've been doing some artist residencies mm-hmm. with different organizations, and that allows me to uh, to run some ideas by them yeah. that are sort of my dream experiments. Right. And they can help make it happen within their building or within the community. One thing I've been interested in lately a lot is how we are surrounded by music all the time, but very little of it is live. And a lot of right. the way we experience music is immersive. If we have it in the background, it changes the feeling of the room. Sure. It changes the experience that we're having. And often we're actually listening more than we realize, even though it's supposed to be background music. Right. So how do you create that very natural environment for experiencing live music that integrates with something else that you're doing that you're interested in doing in um, combination with music? Mm-hmm. So a lot of people who do crafts or who are visual artists or you know, have studios, they have music in their studio almost all the time or right. radio or something that they listen to. Also, if you're interested in going to concerts, but there's some circumstance that prevents you from going to concerts, how can you combine that circumstance with the concert? Right. Interesting. Having a newborn a couple of years ago, I realized that a lot of the stuff I like to do would require me to leave her at home and make very complicated logistical plans sure. in order to enjoy it. But then it almost felt like I was a split personality because I wasn't able to fully engage with the experience yeah. because my mind was elsewhere. Yeah. So I just thought it would be nice, especially in that phase of codependency, but not in the psychological way. No, but in- imprinting <laughs> like and building a caretaker yeah. and an infant. Right. Um, is there a way to have a concert kind of come into that circumstance. So what's the reaction to that been? I've seen a few pictures and it looks like the parents are having a great time and the babies are all paying attention. I mean, what's it been like? <laughs> it's so cute. I bet. I love it. Yeah. Um, we don't have a ton of babies in each concert. It's just a, yeah. a very short right. presentation. It's like a half hour concert and we've structured it so that if the baby doesn't wake up in time to go to the concert yeah. you can come to a repeat performance an hour later and you know it's just like a lot of considerations that become obvious when you're trying to right. you know wrangle wrangle a baby to an appointment of any sort and it's a, and it's a crying aloud environment yes, i'm sure whatever absolutely yeah. just like any way you would be at home sure. with your kid you can just be that way in the performance but it's um i think it's liberating because a lot of people go into a concert hall and abide by the structure of the concert hall. It's very formal. Yes, and there's a reason it's formal. And I think it's an ideal way to experience Mm -hmm. classical music. I agree. But the 
other flip side is that there is a casual way to mm-hmm. experience music where it's more interactive yeah. as a listener, more physically interactive, where you move around or you sort of do other quiet things at the same time. I mean, are you at all strategic about the repertoire for these things, or do you just kind of do what comes to you, or how do you choose what you play for those families? I think pretty much anything could work, right? but the most portable thing is solo Bach. I've yeah. been playing it for the longest yeah. time, and yeah. it's just really second nature, and it seems and like it, pretty much everyone enjoys it, including the baby. Yeah, I was going to say, it never gets old. <laughs> it's <laughs> So I usually do you know, a, a partita, mm-hmm. and then... I play it just like in a performance. It's, sure. it's not really a, an educational concert. It's just a concert and you can yep. just be there. Mm-hmm. And then I do an encore for the babies, like a nursery song or something like that. And the parents I, can come up and yeah. gather around and have the babies look closer at the instrument. And it's not very loud at that point. Yeah. So. I can't wait to hear more about this. I know it's something that you'll probably do more because you have some residencies coming up in the next couple seasons, right? So. Yeah, I yeah. usually have, um, at this point, I have a residency every year, every so year, yeah. in a different location. Yeah. So, I'm, yeah. so, I'm so glad you said Encore, Hillary, because I wanted to talk to you about the Encore project you did a couple of years ago. I think it was 2015 you recorded them, right? So, And I know they're about to all be published, I think. Yeah, we're working on getting the final edition together. It's yeah. been difficult. I have a lot of projects I'm juggling. I'm sure. And it's been an interesting learning process to publish all of these different composers' styles and markings and even music writing programs, the the software, to publish them all in the same format. Just the technical aspect of it is, yeah. I never thought about that. So that's been a big challenge. If it's possible that anyone listening doesn't know what we're talking about, you were inspired to create a new catalog of encores for your instrument, and you engaged with 27 composers' from around the world, literally from around the world, and collaborated with them to create three to five minute pieces that you recorded on this really fabulous disc. I'm just curious, how do you feel about the response to that so far? Are you pleased with how it's gone? And how did the idea even begin to take shape for you? The goal for me was to give composers an opportunity to show what they think an encore can be these days. Mm -hmm. The assumption of what an encore means in a concert has probably changed a lot since the time of Fritz Kreisler, who was a violinist who wrote some very popular encores that even if you don't know his name, you probably recognize the tunes. And you've heard them. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And they're popular for a reason. They're great. And there are these these showpieces as well that people play as encores. And then there are arrangements of older, more popular sort of chestnuts for other instruments. Mm -hmm. And you recognize the melody. Mm -hmm. It's just nice to wrap up a program with that. But I really wasn't seeing commissions for new representations of what an encore could be. And I feel like people nowadays grow up with the idea of an encore being a possibility at the end of a concert. So I wasn't sure how composers would take that suggestion, that they write something really short, because I know they're often restricted in time by their commissions, and that's a really big restriction. And it was a really big project. I was asking a lot of people, so I also wasn't sure if that would be a comfortable place for a composer to be Mm -hmm. and I was really surprised when they all embraced it and I think only a few turned it down because of uh, scheduling conflict. I was noticing from your writings on the issue that not many people told you no and I think that's really great. And I I actually had a, a pretty big collection of composers I wanted to ask sure. because I was so excited to sure. potentially work with them. Yeah. And I expected about two thirds to half to say no, yeah. just 
you know, like you invite people to a big party, right. you expect a certain number to not be able to make Sometimes it. Sometimes they're just busy. <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out that not only were they really positive about the way they approached writing these encores, mm-hmm. They also were positive about the other composers on the project. Even if those composers had total opposite backgrounds and styles, people still expressed a real feeling of inclusion, which made me feel very good about the project. There was one evening after a concert I did in Paris where two composers from the project who happened to be in town at the same time, and so I invited them to the concert, and afterwards we were sitting in a fast food restaurant because that was the only thing that was open at 11:30 yeah. p.m. Sure. in Paris in that region yeah. and i just I, I just sat back and i was watching these two extremely different yeah. people from extremely different upbringings talking to each other just randomly about what their studios looked like and it was, I'm sure it was so satisfying yeah, i was I like bet. People are coming together. Yeah. This is so nice. I mean, most soloists, even people with your stature and your career impact, you're only working with composers once every couple of years on commissions, probably. So you've basically compressed years' worth of interaction into just a really short amount of time, worked with these 26 people. I'm, I'm sure that was incredibly rewarding. It was. It was yeah. much more challenging than I expected because sure. I had, until that point, only had experience commissioning one concerto at a time. Right. I counted up minutes. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if I add all of these pieces together, that's like um, two to three concertos worth. And I kind of know how much time that takes and how to prepare for that. And then I realized it's actually about the piece and the composer, not about the length of the piece. Right. Because you have to get into the interpretation. So how, how am I going to bring the meaning out in this piece. What is the meaning to me? There's no other recording of it. It's brand new. You're just looking at it. It, In a way, the first step you take with a new piece is kind of random. Yeah, of course. Start somewhere. Sure. And then you have to develop it into something, and you just have to trust your instincts on the one hand and be very thorough on the other. Then the premiere always reveals something you didn't expect. Of course. So I went through that process with um, 27 pieces. Yeah. And I will say some soloists work constantly with new composers. They play several premieres a year, but my way of doing it that works more comfortably for me is just to have a single commission that I'm focusing on and then to play that as much as possible Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. following the premiere because I always feel like in my experiences, the premiere is the tip of the iceberg and there's so much more to discover by playing it over and over again. Of course really getting it in my system. But I know for other artists, it's a different experience. So it was really definitely a contrast for me to take on this project. glad you brought up sort of how you think about repertoire because I know that you are very specific and yet seemingly strategic about the way you choose repertoire for your concert season. How do you come to that place each year? What's your process and what are the what are the elements that come into your plan? I've worked with people who have very different approaches yeah. to this mm-hmm. and 
I think I do understand why some people offer a ton of stuff. Sometimes for a performer to do something two or three weeks in a row becomes redundant. Sure. It can feel like if one week goes particularly well and the next week doesn't quite gel with your colleagues, it can feel like a roller coaster. Yeah, yeah. Some people really like to be kept on their toes. They've played all this repertoire a lot, so the switching constantly freshens things up for them mm -hmm. and they play their best when something is really new to them each time they're doing it. And that makes perfect sense. It's just for me, I do like to do something several times in a row because working with different people on it, playing in different halls, practicing right. it, right. I learn a lot about the piece and what I want to do with it in the rehearsal and concert process. Mm -hmm. So if I do it for just one week, I feel like there's so much more that I want to see about where this piece is for me right now in my life. Yeah. And yeah. I don't quite get to go into that to the same extent. You and wouldn't I also be ready have, to put it away yet. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I feel right. like, oh, I want to do it again. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and it's sometimes really surprising. You think that a piece will work really well with a certain combination of people and maybe the mood just isn't quite right. Sure. And it works great, but it's not yeah. surprising you as much as you thought it might. And then the next week you think you know what you're getting into. You're thinking, oh, this will be fine. And then you get there and it completely changes the piece for me. Some so, surprising yeah, direction. So yeah. having those several in a row definitely helps me be open to those possibilities. Thinking about music making that way and some even some of the comments you made before about how the premiere is the tip of an iceberg not the end but the beginning that probably really did make that encore project especially <laughs> kind of fraught with new challenges for you yes. because i mean to have to i mean i listen to those pieces i listen to the recording of those pieces and i know they're not concerto length but they seem to have concerto virtu virtuosity compacted into those three to five minutes so yes what a, what a new way of approaching something <laughs> for you I'm sure it was crazy um I have to credit my partner in the project Corey Smythe the yes, pianist because absolutely. he is well versed in every kind of music you uh -huh. can imagine yeah. and especially with um, contemporary music he can just look at a score and decipher things that I can't decipher because he has so much more experience in it than I yeah. do so once he came on board I felt much more confident, and I had someone who could really help me sort through the extreme novelties of some of the works that I was receiving. Yeah. And then we could build that that interpretation together. So it was so helpful to have someone who had this experience in on the project. It kind of allowed me to take some shortcuts I wouldn't sure. have been able to take or otherwise. Just, or just get get advice and, and mm -hmm. you know, guidance. I, pianists who specialize in contemporary music, I think, are all Alan Turing at heart because there's there's a level of brain power in those people <laughs> yeah. that I just don't understand myself. The piano you know, becomes a machine. Absolutely, And yeah. they see every kind of possible notation right. that Everything. the composer can think of. Everything. And they have so many notes that they can yeah. potentially play it's it's impressive <laughs> what what they're able to accomplish and what yeah. they're able to interpret and digest yeah you know speaking of contemporary music i asked uh Thais pincher when he was on the show this question and i'm curious what you think it's a socially populist world we're living in at the moment and it can sometimes feel like intellect is under siege and it's that contemporary fresh modern ideas maybe aren't welcome so i'm just curious, you've just worked with all these composers recently. How would you assess the state of that part of our art form right now? In general, I like a counterculture. So 
I see classical music as a bit of a counterculture. Sure. Um, and I also see contemporary music as a really creative world. I don't think at this point that, unlike 30 or 40 years ago, that there are people who are in and people who are out within the composer world. Interesting. It seems like there was a sort of expected standard of innovation for a number of waves of composers. Yeah. And then the people who weren't doing that would really have to fight for their turf. And now there's just, I think, much more open-mindedness mm -hmm. in uh, amongst the people who want to hear contemporary music and want to play it, and also writing it. I don't feel like there's this exclusionary tendency. And I actually think that the number of challenges that we're faced with um, through being exposed to so many things on the internet, we can yeah. go listen to anything we want yeah. that might surprise us yeah. um, or we might rely on um, through streaming or mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. You know, we have all of these stimuli thrown at us and inevitably some of those are going to be positive and some are going to be negative. Sure. So I think that contemporary music is a place where we can go to process all of those things and feel like it's talking about the things that we're experiencing. Yeah, I, th that's, I think that's great. And it sounds like you feel like, you know, the state of our world is pretty good, that this openness actually leads to a lot of interesting creativity, which I think is great. I, and I love your comment about the internet and what's available to us. And the thing that makes me the most nervous about the digital world is that it's it's just as easy to turn things off as on. Yeah. So people don't always stay to the end, you know, yeah. and that's that's the risk I think we run with this. It's like busking, though. It's true. I mean, you don't have a captive audience. Yeah, you have to earn it. Yeah. You really do have to earn and it. And it's okay. It's okay yeah. because we have these places where when people want to have a fully concentrated experience, yeah. they can go. I right. feel like a concert is a rare opportunity these days everyone is in the same place mm -hmm. undistracted mm -hmm. focusing on the same experience yeah. having their own version of it definitely especially with classical music it's acoustic right for the most part unless you have you know in contemporary music you have a lot of like pre-recorded or but it's still happening in whatever. the space in real but time it's, yeah. yeah a lot of the tone production is acoustic so right. there's very little filter there's there's not much that's being translated for you it's just being presented and yeah. you take it in yeah and sometimes it can feel like a concert is a long time to be in a dark room looking at people playing an instrument on stage yeah. but at the same time that winnowing of focus is so liberating your mind just goes in places that it's not really free to go otherwise yeah and as to creativity in um you know, any social circumstance. I went to this great exhibit while I was on tour. I don't remember which city it was, but there was a Czech artist who was working. Oh, it was in Vienna. That's where the exhibit was. Mm -hmm. He was working in a very uh, restricted environment, a very censored environment, and he was incredibly creative. He made art that could be questioned as, mm -hmm. is this art or not? Right. And sometimes also you look at, um, you know, Shostakovich yeah. and the, the right. Soviet composers. Of course. Um, sometimes the most challenging times bring out the greatest responses from sure. art. So sure. you never know what's going to come out of which events. But I think having a culture where there is a place for people to express something is 
is very, very helpful. Yeah. You're, you're very good at this. Talking with you is great. And I, and I know that you and I both share this sort of love of the interview process because, <laughs> you know, you've got a bunch of interviews on your YouTube page, including one, I have to say, full disclosure, from 2012 <laughs> with my wife, who is named Hillary Hahn. I had to. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> and she was a great interviewee. Well, she remembers the story very well of kind of sheepishly coming to your dressing room to say, look, I got to tell you, my name's Hillary Hahn. <laughs> and your response was really adorable because you said, oh, my God, we have to tell my parents. <laughs> and then you did the interview, which is great. But, you know, based on your YouTube page and the number of things on there, you have a lot more experience with this than I do. So I'm curious, what do you find works best for you when you're having these conversations? How do you get people talking? What are your techniques? I have a very specific goal with the interviews that mm -hmm. I put up. It's to allow people to introduce themselves to a range of potential um, audience members in their own words. Yeah. yeah. So I don't really ask probing questions in mm -hmm. particular. I kind of mm -hmm. keep it very, very basic, but I also try to make sure that they are free to take it wherever they want. Right. Because it's really about them. Absolutely. But one thing I've noticed traveling internationally as sort of a general conversational thing is in the United States, what you find out at first is facts. You ask, you know, where are you from? Right. What do you do? You know, where do you live? Everybody wants to know your job stuff. in the United States. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. you go abroad and in certain countries where it's more about conversation about abstracts, mm -hmm. um, it's not, it doesn't really come up immediately. Right. It's more that you're talking about what's going on around you at the moment. And I like that. And I, I think when I'm meeting someone for the first time, one thing I like to do is just ask them, so, you know, what, what's your story? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that could be anything. Yeah. And it usually gets a much more um, quick conversation going, or you more quickly get to the conversation to the good stuff. point yeah. when yeah. you just leave it so open-ended, but I don't know if that would work in an interview because in an interview, the interviewer is supposed to already know your story. The audience is supposed to somewhat know your story. So well, to I start with that, I'm not sure yeah. it, would, it would translate. I find when I watch what your stuff, when you're, when you're interviewing people, you're, there's just a very generous and sort of genuine energy that I think people respond to because you, you really do seem to want to know what their story is. I do. It's clear. It's very <laughs> clear. So uh, that's, that's my takeaway from, from studying your work, Hillary. That's the thing I'm going to copy if you don't mind. <laughs> Thank you. Um, before I let you go, we have kind of a standard question that we always ask on this podcast, and it's because mm -hmm. of the name of the podcast and haunted theaters and all that. So I'm curious if you've ever seen a ghost, and if you have, give us the details. I don't know if I've seen a ghost. I mean, maybe I have, and I didn't know it. Oh, that, yeah, that's um, entirely possible. But I have a couple of different experiences where, well, when I was a kid, I was... I had a very active imagination, mm -hmm. and so I was convinced there were vampires under the bed ah. and there were ghosts in the hallway. Okay. So whenever I would get up in the middle of the night and I had to go down the hallway, I would just address the ghosts because I figured if I addressed them, then they wouldn't have to prove themselves and show up. <laughs> and they never showed up, so it worked. So I don't know. <laughs> I have to give you credit. You are the first person to come on this podcast and tell us about your plan for not seeing ghosts. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the other time was when I was, I'd seen The Sixth Sense. So I worked on the 
soundtrack for The Village, right. which was another right. M. Night Shyamalan yep. film. And I figured... He and I were born on exactly the same day, by the way. Nice. Exactly the same day. But it's fun to know who's on I your know. birthday. I know. I love those and, things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I figured I should probably watch some more of his films. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd seen The Sixth Sense on an airplane. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ah, it's not that scary. So I rented it. This is in the days of Blockbuster. Sure. And I was watching it by myself in my apartment at dusk. And it was a loft-style apartment. Mm-hmm. And um, I heard something upstairs. Yeah. But I was the only person there. Yeah. But my phone was about to run out of battery, and I had to get the charger. <laughs> so <laughs> I called someone I knew. I was so terrified because <laughs> I heard something. Like I heard something. Sure. I was not not imagining things. And this apartment stuff would switch off and on at funny times, and okay, you know, so there was would something fall going down. on. Yeah. So my mind was sure. working in overdrive. And, um, yeah, I called someone. I was like, okay, I'm going upstairs, but I think there's something up there. And it might be Donnie Wahlberg. (laughs) (laughs) I got to the top step. The second my foot hit the top step, my phone died, and I wasn't on the phone with anyone anymore. Oh, my goodness. And I just dove into bed, and I pulled the covers (laughs) over, and I think it was a good half hour to, like, got up the courage to reach my arm out and get the charger from the wall. Movies can do that, and that movie is scary. I'm sure you convinced (laughs) yourself with the second viewing that it is very frightening. Well, Hillary, you mentioned to me that you don't get invited to be on many podcasts as a guest, so I'm thrilled you accepted this invitation. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, this is my podcast debut. Well, (laughs) The honor to the Ghostlight Podcast is incalculable. Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Thank you so much. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.